we always think of things as being the snap test. Like if a company disappeared, instantly things would get much, much worse if Taiwan Semiconductor disappeared. But things would get gradually much, much, much worse if ASML disappeared because ASML is absolutely crucial to manufacturing for Taiwan Semiconductor, amongst many others. I'm Mary Long, and that's Bill Mann. He recently appeared on the Bigger Pockets podcast, On the Market. Today, we're sharing that episode with you. Host Dave Meyer caught up with Bill to talk about the global economy, the reaction to the return of normal interest rates, China's real estate situation, and the two most important companies in the world that aren't often discussed. Welcome to On The Market. Thanks for being here. Hey, Dave, how you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm very excited to be talking to you. For everyone who doesn't know you from your work at The Motley Fool, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your work? Uh, so I am the director of small cap research here. Uh, I also have our international brief at the company. The Motley Fool is almost entirely equity based. We look for, for companies all around the world and, you know, we have a very specific style. We're long term buy and hold investors. You know, we, we believe that people are best, uh, best suited doing, doing the work and making decisions for themselves. And so for, for my own standpoint, uh, I view every day for me as kind of being like a treasure hunt. You know, I come in and I look at parts of the market where a lot of people don't really spend a whole lot of time. And are you finding a lot of treasures right now? You know, the the answer is yes, but they've been laying around for a long time. I would describe the current market environment as being one in which uh, in the U.S. we have an S&P 7 and then an S&P 493 and then everything <laughs> else below that. Right. Yes, and yeah. and they're, it's almost like they are unrelated from each other at the moment. So there are a lot of treasures. And Dave, as you know, the difficulty in the market is that just because you found a treasure, it's not like somebody's going to come by instantly and say, Oh, that's a treasure. I mean, it could look like junk for, you know, to everybody else for a long period of time. So, uh, you have to be a, you have to be a patient treasure hunter and hold on to your, hold on to your treasure as long as you can. Well, I think that, you know, our audience is mostly real estate investors. I think that is a very uh, apt analogy also for, for our industry, too. You know, and being patient is investing the name of the game. It's a it's a great way to uh, proceed. So glad we sort of agree there on general philosophy. Yeah, I still kick myself. In 1993, I looked at a place to buy in an area of Washington, D.C. called Logan Circle, which uh, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of your real estate uh, investors now, when I say the words Logan Circle, will we'll go, <gasps> because it's literally the nicest part of Washington, D.C. now. And at that time, it wasn't, you know, but you needed to be willing to bend your headlights around corners and see what was coming. So, yes, I, you know, I'm glad to be talking to people. 
people who understand this principle internally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People did not know Logan Circle was a treasure for a few years, not 1993 and maybe not for a little while, but they got there eventually. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we want to, you know, most of our audience is uh, real estate investors and we might delve into sort of equities a little bit here, but you are also a student of the global economy. And so I was curious to just get your high level view of the global economy right now and where you think we are in this very unique moment. You know, economies are our systems, and maybe that's not a, a really brilliant insight, but uh, we have just gone through a period of time in which in 2020, we had $19 trillion of sovereign debt that the the debt holders were paying for the right to hold. It, they were negative yielding interest rates, which is a kind of thing that for the entire history of, uh, you know, of, of, of the financial markets, people thought of that as being like the Yeti. There's no such thing as negative interest rates, uh, negative yielding interest rates. So obviously one of the reasons why, uh, why that sort of thing would exist is that inflation was the thing that uh, the central banks were trying to bring about. I mean, inv inflation is something that comes along with economic activity. It comes along with growth. Uh, you know, anything that they could do to keep, you know, us from entering a deflationary environment, they did. So we've gone in a very short period of time, as short as we can ever remember of going from a low interest rate environment to, I guess, what you would maybe feel like a high interest rate environment, but it's it's somewhere in the middle. And all of these systems really, really struggle when you go through that period of change, right? You get to stasis on the other side and it's fine, but it's hard to guess, right? It, you know, it, it really is where, where are interest rates going to go end up? We don't really know, but globally, what we're seeing right now is that the U S has been raising faster than everybody else. And commodity prices have been going up. You can see it in a dollar basis, but you can imagine in a market in which the dollar has increased against your local currency and oil prices have gone up, just how destabilizing that can be. This doesn't maybe count for the company, the countries that produce oil, but for everybody else, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a really big deal. So the, I would describe the global markets right now as being, unsettled and looking for a new equilibrium, which they will find. Uh, but it's, you know, it's tough to predict when. And I think interest rates and currencies have a lot to do with that. Yeah. Uncertainty is the only honest way to assess the situation right now. It also seems that different countries and different regions are experiencing really different environments. Like in the U.S., obviously, as you said, inflation was the thing. It's, you know, yep. same thing in Europe, a lot of, you know, South America, same thing. But then you look at an economy like China that's now experiencing deflation. So how do you sort of square this on a global sense where there's sort of different areas of the world that seem so different when just a few years ago, it seemed like the global economy 
obviously has its own little sectors and caveats, but was sort of moving in the same general direction. Yeah, we've really gone through a period of time in which and 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 it started in the middle of last decade. And it really started with China's Belt and Road Initiative, where you began to see uh, some of the larger co- countries using economics as a form of warfare. You've seen it with Russia uh, in regards to both our isolation of Russia, but then also Russia using gas prices as a, you know, like a, a weapon uh, in Europe. So. I think one of the things that you know that that is really happening is that we have gone from being a a uh, a system that has favored globalization to one where you start to see that fracture a little bit. I think the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy still are very deeply linked, but they're much lo- less so than they were even just prior to uh, the pandemic. And so, when you see uh, you know again to get back to what I was saying before, a dislocation or a change, then you're going to see each individual part of that, you know, of that system move in its own way. In the case of China, it has essentially grown over the last decade, uh, doing a bunch of capital, uh, a bunch of capital projects, a huge amount of construction. They build roads to, to nowhere. They build airports. These types of things are a form of growth. But the, if they don't end up being used, then they can become deflationary because you don't need it. And. You don't need to build another one, right? Like there, uh, that is an interesting thing about infrastructure investments is that once the infrastructure is in place, there's no need to repeat it. So <laughs> yeah, if it works, like hey, let's yeah. put in a third airport, right? Like you don't need you don't need that sort of thing. So what you're seeing in China now is a kind of a an echo of what has probably been fairly poorly conceived capital projects that have brought about growth, but not all growth is the same because the consumption hasn't been there. And how concerned are you about this, both from a equity standpoint and just from a global economy standpoint? It seems that at least in my lifetime or adult lifetime, all we hear out of China is outsized growth. And we've never really seen a period where China is a, you know, it's now a period where the China is standing as the second largest economy in the world goes into a recession or goes into a deflationary environment. We've never seen it. So what do you think might come of this? I think one of the most important things for, for, for people to realize is that there is a bit of a decoupling from, from, from China. But to your point, you know, we talk about, for example, the China geopolitical risks, but we don't talk about the things, uh, like, for example, that 94% of Apple's production is in China and 25% of its revenues come from China. What happens to Apple, which is a huge mm-hmm. component of the U.S. stock market, if China continues to stumble. And I, and I think it is absolutely the case that China is stumbling and will continue to do so. So Apple can't simply snap their fingers and move everything to India. I mean, they can't. No. They absolutely positively can't do it. First of all, the Chinese would notice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? Oh, no, nothing, nothing. We're fine. Uh, it 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 doesn't really work that way. So we are still deeply, deeply linked to China. The, the Goldilocks scenario is actually fairly negative 
but it's not terrible. We kind of bumble on along, and China continues to be a manufacturing growth engine. There is some decoupling from China, and the poor capital investments that have been made over the last decade start to get absorbed. The really bad ones would be if you know China's unemployment rate continues to skyrocket, and amongst people below 25, it's believed that it's as high as 45 percent. But we won't know. Right, we won't. because they stopped no. releasing that data. That, exactly, exactly. Well, and even before they stopped releasing it, those numbers were, I don't know how to say it unpejoratively, they were not necessarily the ones that you would uh, would would put uh, your full faith into that are being correct. So fair enough. Uh, so ultimately, if China does go into into a defla- a deflationary spiral, because our countries are so highly linked, I think that there is the potential for uh, for some real pain uh, in the U.S. But even worse in places like uh, like Japan and mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that does seem to be the case. And in the real estate industry, I'm just looking at it sort of as, as the financial sector that, you know, we see that China's central government is pushing their banks to sort of support the real estate industry, which might be by taking, you know, issuing riskier loans. And maybe that's just kicking the can down the line. And, you know, of course, like you said, there is some decoupling, but the global financial system is strongly linked and i you know i worry a little bit not I, i'm not like you know staying up at night thinking about this <laughs> but you know i you, you read about this stuff and you do think okay if the if the chinese market continues to collapse it could lead to some tighter credit conditions here in the united states and that's just one small example dave i think that's exactly right and th- the thing that i always the faith that i always put into the system is that it is that it is somewhat self-healing but mm-hmm. the it is not a new thing that uh, the the central government of china the you know the, the the communist party of china is is using the banking system to further political its its political interests like that's yeah. that's something that has existed forever that's a good point because it's not like if there is this big downturn in china that it's not foreseen you know i think a lot of banks and companies that are operating in China know that this is going on. And, you know, the the property crisis has been going on for a year or two already. You know, like this is not a a quick moving thing. Um, So at least as an economy and individual companies do have some time to adapt to it. Yeah, and this is where you get into the topics of the uh, you know of the phantom cities, the ghost, the ghost developments all around China. A lot of people don't really realize they think of China as having a huge amount of U.S. treasuries that 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 is a weapon that they have over us. But that's only one part of the balance sheet. You know, they also are have an incredible amount of debt. It may be the most indebted large economy in the world, which seems amazing in a world in which the United States. Japan exists, but you know, it is <laughs> it it certainly may be the case. The way that China's provinces have raised money to operate themselves is through land sales. They go to their own mm-hmm. land banks and they sell into these property developers who then develop and the loans come from the banks. It's all mandated by the central authority. And again, this gets back to the something that I was talking about earlier, you know, when we we're talking about infrastructure. 
I guess you would consider housing to be infrastructure also, but even in a totalitarian society, it's hard to sell the same land twice. Like once you have sold it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess you could take it back, but you know, at some point the buyers are going to figure out what the game is. Mm-hmm. So they are selling ever more adversely selected land in a period of time in which the land that has been sold before has not generated a great capital return. And so the rot that's in China right now on every level is substantial. So when you say the, the central government is getting involved in mandating the banks to do to do these sorts of things to to support these property developers they're literally just trying to uh, plug holes in the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. of you know the whole chinese economy yeah that that's not what you want that that doesn't spell <laughs> like, confidence to me you know it's... <laughs> what a way to break it down yes that's not what you want <laughs> <laughs> just listener if you were curious not ideal situation Uh, Well, you know, so I want to switch gears a little bit from real estate to something that I think is a little more bit more. I mean, obviously, real estate, there are equities and REITs and stuff. But Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about uh, chip manufacturing and semiconductors, because this is something that is related to China, the whole global economy and is closely connected to one of the uh, one of the uh, what do you call it? The S&P seven before. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I assume NVIDIA is one of those seven that you were. It uh, is. Citing. They did it. Yes. Yeah. OK. They made yeah. it to the seven. Well, maybe you could just start by giving us sort of a background on the situation with chip manufacturing and, and sort of how it is distributed across the globe and why it's so important. Yeah, so obviously the majority of the uh, the advanced microchips in the world are produced in Taiwan, and they're almost all produced by a company called Taiwan Semiconductor. And it's so whenever you talk about the geopolitical situation in Taiwan, and obviously it predates the existence of Taiwan Semiconductor, but Ta- Taiwan S- Semiconductor is absolutely now the prize of Taiwan. The company is such you know has such a linchpin on the global economy. That they're really, if you even ask experts, there really isn't a good answer where the second option were to be. Like if you snapped Hmm. your fingers and Taiwan Semiconductor disappeared. Right. There's nobody to step in. You know, they, they are so far ahead of any other comparable producer. And why? Why? They would say that it has to do with the process and the, and the type of talent that they have in Taiwan. And I, and I think that this is probably somewhat true that they have, you know, they, they have 3,000 of some of the best developers in the world all in one space. They have been incredibly paranoid about technology transfer, making sure that their trade secrets don't get out. You can, you can be fired in Taiwan Semiconductor for doing something like changing the heading on an email that you've been forwarded, right? Like the level, (laughs) it it seems nuts. I mean, I've done worse things than that. I don't know about about you and I haven't been fired. I've done worse things today for sure. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We had, we had lunch here and I had seconds. And so (laughs) if that that is a fireable offense, I wouldn't have made it past my first week. Exactly. So (laughs) it, it is a, it is a potentially catastrophic situation. And so, I mean, you know, the, the, the U.S. has recognized this. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we began to, uh, the U.S. government passed a bill called the, the Chips and Science Act, which has helped f- essentially 
fund Taiwan Semiconductor's development of of additional facilities like in Arizona. You know, that's that's the huge one. That's being done not necessarily at the total choice of Taiwan Semi. It's also being done funded. Almost 70 percent of it is being funded by the U.S. government. So that that is something I was curious about, because Taiwan Semiconductor Company has this monopoly, essentially, on the most yeah. advanced types of chips. Why would they expand to the U.S.? Uh, is it because the U.S. government and the Taiwanese government are also sort of intertwined and the U.S. provides a lot of aid to Taiwan and is sort of seen as this military backstop against sort of any sort of Chinese incursion? Is the, is all of that playing into like these little, I mean, not little, but these seemingly innocuous semiconductor plants that are going into the U.S.? Well, you've heard of money, right? I, I, a few times. Yeah. I even have, I don't have a lot of it, but I, I would like to have more of it. You don't have Taiwan semiconductor money, but I mean, no. a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the U.S. government almost, because when the U.S. went in and said, okay, uh, you know, we, we don't want these companies to sell into China anymore, that, you know, Ty, Taiwan semi cut off sales to Huawei, which was like its second largest customer. Huawei is uh, one of the largest. Really? Chinese companies, yeah. yeah, just shut it off. Didn't they didn't really have any choice, right? So because the U.S. government insisted, basically, yeah, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what's the give back there? Like, okay, look, we understand that this is a painful thing for you, one of the most important companies in the world. So how about we find ways to help you de-risk a little bit? And oh, hey, by the way, we've got this land in Arizona. If you would like to build there, we will provide all of the infrastructure. We will provide a lot of the funding. Mm -hmm. And and we're just talking about manufacturing. You know, you can okay. retain all of your development. You can retain all of your. You can retain everything that you want in Taiwan. Because, by the way, Taiwan Semiconductor, like a lot of uh, chip companies and memory companies, a lot of their manufacturing was in China. It's not in Taiwan mm -hmm. now. So some of the choices that they were having to make, they were forced to make uh, at the behest of the U.S. government and other Western powers. There is a little bit of a give back there. And so I think that that has a whole lot to do with it, uh, that and, you know, and the money thing. <laughs> the money, that small money thing. Um, so, you know, when you look at sort of the stock market and obviously T TSM is a, uh, what is it, TSCM? Sorry, I can never get the TSMC, right. uh, yeah. TSMC, TSM. yeah, there we go. Yeah. Thank you. They are obviously a publicly traded company, but you look at other chip companies that have been going crazy in terms of valuation over this year. Is this largely and due to the same thing? There's still just a chip shortage. Demand is out of control or is something else going on here? At least partially. So uh, one of the largest chip companies in the world is Micron Technologies, and they just reported earnings and and they've actually seen a, a real softening in terms of pricing. I mean, in a lot of ways, you have to separate uh, Taiwan Semi from most of the other, you know, most of the other chip companies because they are commodities, right? Ultimately, you know, uh, chip production is is in some ways no different from oil production, right? Like you basically don't get to to name your own price the price is set for you. And the distinction is that Taiwan Semiconductor has the more advanced chips, right? That is exactly. that the difference. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. They have they they have chips that are 
generally speaking, the rule of thumb is that they are two years ahead of their next competitor. Ooh, wow. I know, oh, which, yeah. especially yeah. in technology, seems like, that's I mean, that's insane. literally yeah. forever, right? Like, you know, we were, we were still, it feels like we were still using digital watches two years ago. So, like, God, I mean, are, that, now that really just underscores the importance. Can you imagine having to go back to like an iPhone 11? It would be unbearable. Brutal. It would be <laughs> absolutely horrible. The horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get it. That's ultimately it. Yeah, After okay. We just this is what's at stake here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. If we were just being released uh, excited about the, uh, the 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 iPhone 11. So that's really what it comes down to. I mean, it is a, you know, it is potentially a massive massive deal. So one of one company that I am particularly interested in because I live in the Netherlands. I don't know if you know that, Bill. And there is a company here called ASML, which is uh, they they're like they make the machines that make the chips, right? Right. Is that correct? Yes. So how do they sort of how do they fit into this whole? global competition for chips. Uh, So we have now touched upon maybe the two most important companies in the world that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, ASML is another one of those technology companies that the technology that they build is so sensitive that the U.S. government, the Dutch government, the British government, they have no interest in having that 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 technology and that know how end up in China or in, in Russia to some degree. But really, uh, China is the country that, you know, that knows what to do with that type of technology. Uh, ASML is the manufacturer of the equipment that makes the highest end uh, chips. So we always think of things as being the snap test. Like if a company disappeared, instantly things would get much, much worse if Ty- Taiwan Semiconductor disappeared. But things would g- get gradually much, much, much worse if ASML disappeared because ASML is absolutely crucial to manufacturing for Taiwan Semiconductor, amongst many others. So do you see, you know, I I get that, you know, I think ASML is like one of those like backlogs of product orders that, you know, they could stop taking orders now and they'd be busy for the next 30 years, like Boeing, you know, they have these like orders for decades. Do you see more manufacturing coming into the United States? Like this obviously matters to the for just the economy in general, but as real estate investors, like the places where these plants go tend to be economic hotspots after they go in. So just curious your outlook. Uh, I think ASML, I, it's a really good question. I th- it, it seems to me, and this is somewhat theorizing. So if this turns out to be a thousand percent wrong, we can, you know, we can, we can blame it on just a bad theory. Well, ASML, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like years later, just yeah, out. years later, uh, I'll edit it. <laughs> ASML is one of those companies that is, it's so sensitive that I think it's pretty much comfortable for all of the, you know, all of the actors for it to be in a centralized place. I don't, I don't really foresee too much of ASML's manufacturing capacity moving away from the Netherlands, moving away from its central place. And there are other companies that are like that. Fanuc in Japan, which is a robot maker is one where mm-hmm. they make basically everything in a single facility. And it is for those industrial espionage 
garage and and technology transfer uh, limitation reasons that they do it. So, so I'm not sure that ASML is going to be of a great benefit for real estate investors anywhere other than in the Netherlands now. For sure, yeah, yeah. I I guess my question is more like because ASML is so backlogged, like. Is there is there realistic that producers who need the ASML machines are going to be able to build new plants in the U.S., whether it's Taiwan Semiconductor or any other chip maker? I mean, that is uh, so I never really thought about it that way. If I, you know, well, maybe just be a stupid question. (laughs) No, it's not a stupid question. It's actually a fantastic one, which is uh, uh, I ultimately when you think about a company like ASML, what you're talking about is is not so much a, a backlog. It's a backlog at the very, very top end. So it doesn't really slow down Ameri- uh, a Taiwan semiconductor for ASML to have a backlog. What it does okay. is, is it limits their capacity to bring out the next and the next technologies. So yes, that backlog is not ideal. It's possible that they will solve it through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an, an, an addition of ASML capacity. Most likely the way that that plays out is that it simply changes the curve on uh, new technology adoption. Okay, great. Well, we, we started in China. We went to microchips. We talked a little bit about my home here in the Netherlands. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on Europe in general, because we have... Germany, which is the biggest driver of economic growth traditionally in mm-hmm. in the EU, uh, technically in a in a recession right now, and we're seeing the continent, uh, you know, some co- economies doing well, some doing poorly, and as obviously a big integrated part of the global economy. Where do you give us an assessment of the Europe the eurozone? So I would describe the U.S. dollar right now as being a bit of a wrecking ball. You know, so when we were talking earlier about oil prices and then U.S. dollar inflation, because 60% of the world's commodities are priced in dollars, a strong U.S. dollar is a problem very specifically for, for, for Europe. Europe has a number of, of, of economies and maybe Netherlands is at the top of the list, but Germany as well that are both export oriented and they are very good capital reinvestment countries. Uh, the one that I would put at maybe the top of the list though is Sweden you know as a huh. as as a country that has done an incredibly good job at looking outside of the you know of 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 the country uh in terms of reinvesting uh their profits uh so th- I think the Swedish economy is probably the one to me that is most interesting hmm. as an investor oh cool interesting wouldn't have thought of that all right well Bill, this has been very fascinating, very helpful conversation and getting a better understanding of the global economy. If you had, you know, you had crystal ball time here, if you had to, to take a guess on how the global economy evolves over the next year, what, what's your view? So I think it really is going to be based on a couple of things that are that that are that are hard to predict. The first of which is uh, India is really driving hard to become a manufacturing center in a very high tech way. India, mm-hmm. I would describe as the economy of the future, and it maybe always will be. Uh, but hmm. it, I mean, you can see now they're trying to open up a you know they're trying to open up up a very high tech manufacturing uh, area in Gujarat. At 
any point, particularly when you see a, a a break in the past, you know, the things that have been the drivers of the past. And I'm thinking specifically here of uh, of AI, of artificial intelligence. I think you have a real opportunity for advancements in parts of the economy that we haven't really expected. I expect that probably we have come close to the end of the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve raising interest rates. So I think you're going to see, uh, you know, a little bit of a return to, to stability that will give companies a, you know, a little bit of a longer, their binoculars will look out a little bit farther so they mm-hmm. can make some additional plans. You're going to see some real deployment, uh, redeployment, but I see the, I see the, the global economy moving back to, you know, a reasonable rate of an inflation and, uh, you know, GDP, GDP growth across the globe of, of, you know, three and a half to four percent. Well, Bill, let's hope you're right. I like your vision of the future. That sounds like a vision of the future we can we can all get behind. I'd vote for me. <laughs> yeah, if you can do it, if you can if you can do it, I'd vote for you too. Well, Bill, where can you know? You obviously you are uh, doing a lot of research. You make a lot of content. Where can people follow you if they want to learn more? So I am. Uh, I run a few services at the Motley Fool. I one call. I one uh, called uh, Global Partners, which is an international equities service. And I run another called Value Hunters, which is kind of scouring the globe and looking for companies that have been then uh, been left behind. Treasures. So, treasures. Exactly. You're finding the treasures. Should have just called it treasures. Yes. <laughs> so those are the best places to find me. Uh, and I'm on Motley Fool Money, uh, you know, a couple of days a week. That is our free uh, podcast and radio show. Awesome. Well, Bill, man, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate the invitation. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.